morning, Austin Oaks Church family. If you're a guest with us, glad to have you with us. We're a church that strives to be simply all about Jesus. So let's just jump into it. If you have a Bible, let's turn to Acts chapter 15. That's where we're going to be camping out this morning. Before we get into the passage, I need to ask everybody this question. Are there any golfers in the room? Now, golf is a relative statement, okay? I'm not talking like you go every week and you have this membership. I'm talking like if you go once a year, you're a golfer, right? Or let's even make it a little bit more liberal. Like if you have clubs in the garage. Okay, all right, good. I, I hate and love golfing. Like I really do. It's like this love-hate relationship. I love golf because of the mastery that it takes. I love the exactness of it. Like, no matter how often you go, there's nobody who can ever master the golf game. I love the landscaping. I love the pace of the game, unless you got some punks behind you who are always pushing you to go faster. You know, the guys who will hit the golf ball when you're on the green just to let you know they're there, to which I'm the guy that I'll hit your ball into the out-of-bounds if you do that, just letting you know. Like, there's so much about the golf game that I love, but it's so frustrating because, like, if anybody, like, if you golf, like, you go, this should be easy, right? It's a little ball, stick, hole. What's so hard about that? And, like, we all deceive ourselves because we all get really mad at our golf game thinking we should be better than what we are, right? Like, you get to, like, my dad, I won't go there because I know he's listening. Sorry. <laughs> But there's something exhilarating, too, when you hit a really good golf shot, right? It, like, gives you enough momentum to go back. But there's really nothing that's humiliating when you're golfing with somebody that either you really don't know or you just met, and then something like this happens. You know, anybody ever have that? You're like, oh, that was just a practice swing. But, like, inside, you know, you're like, Jesus, forgive me for lying. Like, golf is so exacting. Like, you know, if you swing and your club face is just open or closed by one degree, it will ruin the trajectory of the ball flight. Like, if your goal is to hit this thing straight, one degree off will make it travel significantly off, uh, off target. But let's even say, for more complexity, your golf club face is perfectly aligned the way it should, but then your swing line is off. Then you're hitting the ball off course again. It's a game of degrees. It's so exacting. That's why it's so frustrating. One degree makes all the difference in the game of golf. Back in 1979, there were 257 people who got on an airplane to go on the sightseeing trip to the Antarctic. Unknown to the pilots, they were giving coordinates that were one to two degrees off. Not a big deal. It's just a few degrees at this point. It really can't be that bad. It's just close enough. But that two-degree air placed the aircraft 28 miles to the east of its intended target. And as the pilots got closer to what they thought was their intended destination, they descended to a lower altitude. And before they realized, before they could even course correct, they realized they were heading straight into Mount Erebus, a 12,000-foot active volcano. And before they knew it, it was too late. They crashed into the side of a volcano and 257 people died. Just two degrees off. Not a big deal. It's close enough. A young teenager, 15, 16 years old, 
He's been going through some serious difficulties in life, unhappy with the choices he's been making, feeling something is off, almost as if the lies and the promises that culture has been propping up is coming up empty. There has to be more than drugs and drinking and relationships because they are just bringing brokenness. So this guy, he takes a risk and he goes to the church that he grew up in and he's smelling like the last cigarette that he just smoked, shows up in sandals, shorts, and a t-shirt. And as he's about to walk into the sanctuary, he's met by an usher who proceeds to tell him, sir, you're either going to have to sit in the back or you're going to have to leave because we don't dress like that here. Just one degree off. It's so close. That young man leaves the church. Not just that day, but for many days to come. Why is it a big deal? Buddy, just dress up. Then you can come in and then you can experience Jesus. It's just one degree off. 6,000 miles from Texas is a country called Romania. And it was 2002, and there was about 13 years since the fall of communism in that nation. And the gospel of Jesus has now been spreading through all areas of Romania, specifically the poor villages, and reaching a people group called the Gypsies. A group of 12 college students went to Romania on a mission trip to reach the youth and the collegiates over there. And at one village, two of the students were able to share their story of how Jesus changed their life from the inside out. And then they proceeded to tell them about the gospel. Noticeably and quite audibly to the front left was a woman who was weeping and in deep anguish. And she cautiously raised her hand to ask those students a question with tears running down her face. And between sobs she said, Do you have to be baptized in order to love Jesus? Do you have to be immersed in order to be saved? Because within seconds, that whole room grew tense. And she proceeds to share, our village elders told us that in order to be saved, in order to be a follower of Jesus, you have to get baptized. You have to go under the water. But I can't. I'm afraid of drowning. It's one degree off. No big deal. Lady, just get some courage and get baptized for goodness sake. Do it for Jesus. It's what the Bible says after all. Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. One degree off. Not that big of a deal. Just get it done. And the membership classes don't have a lot of men in them. That was a joke. <laughs> Just got to get it out of there, right? Just, Just one degree off from the simplicity and the purity and the radical nature of the gospel is oftentimes the difference between life and death. One degree off is not that big of a deal, but it is. The purity of the gospel message should and should always be we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. That has to be forever the message in the anthem of the church, to be simply about Jesus, period. Not Jesus plus, just Jesus, Because if you start off one degree off, it ends with devastating results. Even though it looks innocent and good at its beginning, the trajectory of it is devastation. From the very beginning of the movement of Jesus we see in Acts, the enemy shows his hand crystal clear. 
Anytime Jesus was being preached, anytime the gospel was being preached, grace was being preached, there arose opposition. People who would try to come in and say, no, it's not just Jesus, it's Jesus plus this. Trying to distort, trying to poison the mind of the believers to cause confusion and disunity and to rebuild the very walls that Jesus tore apart. We see that played out. Over and over and over and over. And Acts 15 is one of the defining moments that we have in this letter of Acts. Because if the church tolerated this one degree shift, the church may not look like it does today. This is a significant moment in Acts. So let's look at this. Acts 15, verses 1 through 3. Some men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, in other words, they were arguing, like, not just lightly. We're talking, this is an entertaining church business meeting. <laughs> just saying. Like, this was significant. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders because news about this conflict spread to the mothership in Jerusalem. So they went, and on their way, they told other churches about all that God was doing in the churches in Galatia at this time. Now, I need you to hang with me for a little bit because I have to paint a picture. I have to give us the framework in order for us to appreciate Acts 15. Okay, if we go back and understand the movement of the church of Jesus Christ in Acts, Acts 1, 8, and you will receive, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, and when you receive it, you will receive power then to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. So we see that playing out in Acts like 1 through 6, and also persecution comes, and then it moves into Samaria. We see that movement happen, and then from greater persecution, it moves out into the ends of the earth, as we see that and then in Acts chapter 10 with Peter and Cornelius. We preached on this a few weeks ago, and if you recall, Peter was on the roof of this house at the time of prayer, and he gets this vision, and it's a bizarre vision. The sheet comes down, all sorts of food on it, and God's like, rise, kill, and eat, Peter. And Peter's like, no, God, I wouldn't do that. I'm a good Jew. I wouldn't eat these unclean things. I haven't done it my whole life. And God three times had to rebuke him and say, do not call what I've made clean unclean. Peter doesn't know really what's happening because behind the scenes, God is stirring and moving in the hearts of Cornelius, a Roman centurion. The very people who are oppressing the Jewish people. God is moving in there. And so they connect in Joppa. Peter sees it. He moves with them goes to have fellowship with these Gentiles, and he preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit fell on him, and Peter's like, oh my goodness, the Spirit of God fell on them just like it did to us in Acts chapter 2. God shows no partiality. Significant statement for the church. What Peter just said there as he saw Jesus doing was like, there's neither nor male nor female, black nor white, rich nor poor. All are on the same playing field. All come to Jesus the same way. Nobody's at a greater start or advantage. We're all broken. We're all sinful. And we all need to be saved through his grace. Well, word reaches the church in Jerusalem that Peter, Peter, the pillar of the church, had fellowship with Gentiles. So then in Acts chapter 11, verse 2 and 3, 
They go back to the mothership church. Peter goes up there in the circumcision party, criticizes him, saying, Hey, Peter, what gives? You had dinner with the uncircumcised. Peter goes, Guys, I had no intention of doing it, but I saw God at work. Listen to Jesus, do what he says. And I saw God moving there, so I went with there. This was God's idea. He opened the door. And when I started telling him about Jesus, the Holy Spirit fell, and I realized, oh my goodness, who am I to judge? Over and over this happens. And then somewhere now, this, this beautiful scene unfolds where Paul and Barnabas go on mission to the region of Galatia. And they're preaching to the Gentiles. And many, many Gentiles are coming to the faith. To the degree that the Jewish people are getting jealous of the crowds and of their popularity. Feeling threatened that their cultural identity and customs are going to be disappeared. And so what they started to do? They started to infiltrate the church. Started saying, no, Jesus plus this. And over and over and over there was this conflict that Paul and Barnabas would have to have. With these people that we come to know as the Judaizers. Then... Then they go back to Jerusalem and they get sent back out. So now somewhere, okay, somewhere between the end of chapter 14 and chapter 15, Paul writes the letter of Galatians, okay? And here's why this is important. Paul and Barnabas go back to the churches in Galatia. And they start to discover some things. That the distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ is starting to take root. So let's turn to Galatians. Because this is important for us to understand the significance of what we're about to read. Galatians 1 verse 6. I am astonished. Like this is like Paul saying, I'm like, I'm flabbergasted. My jaw is on the floor. I can't believe that you would do this. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In other words, let him be damned. You want to know, they had a debate going on here. These are fighting words. As we have said before now, we say again, if anyone is preaching to you to a gospel contrary to the one you see, let him be accursed. There is no other gospel. It's Jesus alone, never Jesus plus. And we see this played out a little bit more in chapter 2, of verse 4. Yet because of these false brothers, they were secretly brought in. They slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus so that they might bring us back into slavery in other words, bring us back to this work-based religion where we never know how good, good is good enough and rebuilding the walls that separate people. We didn't yield even for a moment. But watch this. Verse 11. But when Caiaphas came to Antioch, anybody want to guess who that is? Peter. The Apostle Peter. This is 10 years after Acts chapter 10. After Peter had that vision, saw God bust out a revival within the Gentiles. Ten years removed. But when Caiaphas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why? Because certain men came from James. In other words, certain men came from the main denomination office. They came from the mothership church. 
And he was eating with the Gentiles. He was acting like the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Just one degree off, not a big deal. This is what we've always done. But also this gospel drift is bringing other people into this air. So that even my Barney, my Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, because it's one degree off, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Jews to live like Jews? Tell me, Peter. Well, that's an embarrassing moment for Peter right there. Because he has nothing to say. Paul goes on, he's like, we know we're not made right, we're not saved by works, we're not saved by the law, but by grace. Old habits die hard. Cultural paradigms die hard. Traditions die hard. Personal preferences die harder. Peter slipped back into old ways, back into his pharisaical mindset, his Jewish customs. This is the age-old Jesus plus blank equals salvation formula. This is a false gospel. Always. Always. No Jesus plus circumcision. No Jesus plus baptism. No Jesus plus communion. No Jesus plus good looking dress on Sunday morning. No Jesus plus five quiet times before 7 a.m. No Jesus plus this. No Jesus plus that. All of that actually looks a lot like this formula right here. It's Jesus plus fill in the blank equals false gospel that leads to destruction. It's the top tactic of our enemy. To distort the word of God ever so subtly, one degree off. One degree off. What was happening in the churches of Galatia that Paul had to come in so strong? Confusion. False gospel belief. Disunity. Racial prejudice again. All of the walls that Jesus tore down, they built right back up. That's why this is significant. God shows no partiality. But anytime, anytime we play that formula, we show partiality. We create division and we build walls. That's significant. I was one of those two college students on that trip to Romania. And it was my friend and I who were asked to share our stories to that sweet lady. And she so passionately wanted to love Jesus. But she was told over and over and over that she couldn't love Jesus. There's no way that she could even have the desire to love Jesus because she refuses to be baptized. When Jesus died on the cross, his last words were, it is finished. The death, resurrection, and ascension completed for us everything we need for salvation. He didn't say, it is finished. Oh, and fix yourself then. He didn't do that. That's not the gospel. Acts 15 is significant because the question that is being asked is, what does it mean to be a Christian? If baptism is a requirement in order to be saved, then our salvation is by works. It's not by grace, and then Jesus would have died in vain. How easy, church, let's just be honest, how easy it is to add to the message of Jesus. 
How easy is it to allow our cultural paradigms and our traditions and our preferences to dictate what it means to be saved and what it looks like to follow Jesus? Paul and Barnabas, they go at it because they know that people's forevers are at stake. And so they have this mass debate going on. In verse 4 and 5, very interesting as this scene is going to get ramped up. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. And the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done. So they're just sharing the experiences, what they've seen and heard happen in the region of Galatia on their mission trip. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, I would encourage you, if you're the underlying type, these three words, significant, it is necessary. They rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses one degree off. But here's the nature of what happens when we add at least one thing to the gospel. We inevitably add a whole bunch of other things to the gospel. Oh yeah, circumcision and also tell them to keep the whole law of Moses. Like just think about this. We know at this moment there's 613 laws that they are obliged to keep. They're choosing to highlight one out of the 613. And as they start off on this degree, it ends up going all 613. This is significant. This phrase, it is necessary, what they are doing is they are promoting their own brand of Christianity. They're promoting and establishing their own brand. Yes, Jesus, good, but not enough for salvation. Jesus plus circumcision enough for salvation. Friends, anytime you see that phrase, it is necessary, you know that it's a false gospel. You have to be aware of that. In fact, like, I I think, hear my heart here, not all denominations, but many of our denominations have come because of this phrase, it is necessary, where they added something. They put something that was secondary or tertiary, and they put it at the same importance of Jesus and said, this is it. And so they divided themselves over something that isn't substantial. One degree off, two degrees off, but it ends in devastation. The apostles and the elders gathered together to consider matter And there, after much debate, verse 6, Peter stands up, verse 7, and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's the Acts 10 story, the Cornelius event. He's referencing that. Now, this speech of Peter is his last appearance in the book of Acts. And this comes after, it comes after Galatians 2.11. This is repentant Peter. This is Peter coming back to the heart of the gospel. This is Peter realizing, oh my goodness, this is so easy to do. I did it myself. He's like, guys, listen, he, he, through my mouth, God wanted the gospel to go out to the Gentiles, verse 8. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Why are you putting a requirement on salvation that God himself didn't do? 
you are testing God. You are playing with fire and you're going to get burned. Don't do it. Why are you putting a yoke on the neck of these disciples? Now, neither our fathers nor we've been able to bear. Someone remind me, how many steps can you take on a Sabbath? Someone remind me, which fabric that we can't use when we're wearing yoga pants? <laughs> I have no Okay. I'm embarrassed. I don't know where that came from. Can we come back? Can, can, can we come back from that? It's in my head. He's like, there is no distinction. Why are we putting this yoke on them that we couldn't keep and our forefathers could never keep? The law, its purpose is to reveal sin. It's never meant to actually save us because we can't keep the law. That's the point of the law is to show us the need for the Savior. In fact, didn't Jesus teach us something about a yoke too? Like, didn't he say that he's inviting those who are weary and tired and needing rest? And he invited us to be yoked to him because his burden is light? So guys, what are we doing? We know to be yoked with Jesus is to follow his path, is to follow the life of grace. Why would we be yoked again to the law? Oh, I love how Peter says, God who knows the heart. Church, that should make us just go, thank you, Jesus. God who knows the heart. Because the reality is, we can never be good enough. If it was all about competency, we would be miserable wretches forever. God knows the heart. That lady in Romania, her heart wanted Jesus, but she was told, God doesn't see your heart until you're baptized. Then God sees your heart. You see the danger of Jesus plus whatever? When we communicate that kind of message, that kind of false gospel, we are distorting God's heart to a world that needs to see the heart of God. Jesus said about the Pharisees in Matthew 15, you guys don't see the heart. You make it all about things that you do. You honor me with your lips. You bring the sacrifices. You bring this and that. But your hearts are far from me. Jesus plus blank is always about the effort. It's never about the heart. Don't test God, you guys. Don't. Don't add that. Don't do this. Next up, Paul and Barnabas, verse 12. They just tell all that they've seen and heard. The signs, the spirit falling and revival happening in the Gentile world. And then verse 13, James stands up and speaks. This is not James, the brother of John. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Jesus' half-brother. Which, side note, just... For interesting sake, if my older brother told me he was the son of God, I would tell him he's nuts. In fact, James did that. Jesus' whole family did that. The fact that James is a pillar in the church who sacrificed his life and livelihood, there only it can be one thing that happened for a brother to say he's my Lord would be if Jesus resurrected. That's free. 
But I'm just saying, that's amazing. This is the same James who wrote the epistle of James. James is a devout Jew. He's well known in the Pharisaic party. So when James stood up to speak, I can imagine the circumcision group getting a little bit excited that James is going to give it to Peter and Paul and Barnabas. He'd be like, put them in their place. Yes, circumcision is needed. But James says, listen to me. Simeon, Peter, has related how God first visited Gentiles. It was God's initiative. It was God's action to go towards the Gentiles, to take a people from, for his name. And with these words, he starts to quote Old Testament prophecy, Amos chapter 9, saying, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. He's referencing Jesus did that. He was the fulfillment of this. Why? Then the remnant or the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. And I love how he quotes, like Amos says, like the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. This has been forever God's intention to open up the gospel, a means of salvation by grace, to the whole world. Then, verse 19, this is the verse of this chapter. Acts 19, therefore... It is my verdict or my judgment that we should not trouble. That word can mean make difficult or greatly annoy. Therefore, it is my judgment that we should not trouble. We shouldn't make it difficult or greatly annoy those of the Gentiles who turn to God. This isn't after turning to God. This is speaking of the process of turning to God. Those who are looking for Jesus, those whom Jesus is in pursuit of, he's saying to the church, don't make it hard for outsiders to find God in your community of faith. Don't do it. That's a powerful statement. We have to let that sit inside of us for a bit because we need to go, okay, what does that mean for us today? Like, are there things that we do as a church because of our cultural paradigms and our own personal preferences and our own traditions that we've had? Do we make it difficult for those in the city of Austin to come to know Jesus in our community? That's a hard check. Any of these difficulties, any of these annoyances are the very thing that cause a one degree shift off of the gospel. I was going to draw. I'm not going to. And I love that James uses that word difficulties because it allows us to go, what are they today for us? You do not, you do not have to be baptized to be saved. There are denominations who believe that and teach that. Nor does baptism save you. But baptism is important because Jesus gave it to us as a sign of identity and loyalty and obedience. But it's done after salvation. You don't have to take communion in order to be saved or to stay saved. Communion is important because Jesus gave it to us as a cultural former for us to be shaped by the gospel as we remember his death, his broken body, and his shed blood, and the price that he paid to unite us and to connect us to him. Now, however, the God, communion is important because it was there, but it's after salvation. 
It doesn't matter what style of music you worship God with. It doesn't matter how you dress when you come to church. It doesn't matter if you're a vegan, if you eat red meat, if you eat pork, if you drink beer, if you drink water. It doesn't matter. Woo! It doesn't matter if you read the KGV, ESV, NIV, CSB, ABC translation. It doesn't matter if you still have sin issues or not. It doesn't matter if you're an Aggie or a Longhorn. Football season. It doesn't matter how you vote. It's by grace and grace and grace alone. It's through Jesus alone. We cannot elevate secondary and tertiary areas to the same prominence as Jesus. Church, do not make it hard or difficult or annoying for those who are turning to God to find God in your community. Friends, I would even say how we treat people here on a Sunday morning is important. Welcoming people, meeting people you don't know, serving is important. Are we authentic, real, vulnerable? Are we coming in faking like everything's great, even though your whole car ride here was miserable? Are we joyful in worship? What does our story of Jesus tell when people look at us worshiping? Do we tell a compelling story of Jesus by how we love and interact with each other? Because Jesus says, the world will know you're my disciples by your love. I preach the way I preach because I don't want to create obstacles. I could use 10-syllable religious jargon and phrases all day long. I choose not to because how does that help somebody who's one decision away from a bad decision? I choose to be vulnerable in my preaching and to share all of my issues and my struggles because I want people to know that I'm real, that I don't have it together, that I struggle, that I'm still in process. Do not make it difficult for those coming to know Jesus. If, you're, if you know a new believer and that new believer still swears, so you still sin too. Do these things matter? 100% they matter, but we partner with Jesus. And it's not the works-based and moral conformity that motivates us to do it. It's the love of Christ that drives us to do it. And then he goes on. It's a little odd. I can't preach on this because there is no time. But then he tells the Gentiles, there are some prohibitions. Hey, guys, avoid sexual morality which is still prevalent for us. And then he tells them about like, hey, don't eat food strangled and blood and all these kind of things. And you go, wait, 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 wait. I thought you just said it was just Jesus alone. He's giving these as a prohibition, not as a means of salvation. What is at stake here is unity. Saying Jewish people still have a hard time understanding the freedom that we have in Christ. So if by your freedom you cause a weaker brother to stumble by what you eat, which Paul teaches in Romans and Corinthians, don't do it. Do not use your freedom to cause other people to stumble. So you sacrifice your freedoms out of love for the sake of unity, for the sake of Jesus. Don't make it difficult. One degree off, so easy to do, but it's so devastating. 
there will always be temptations to take the church off course, always, by as little as one little percent. I experienced that. And I had substantial church hurt as a result. And I know that you might have church hurt too. Or you know people who will never come back to church because of the hurt that was experienced in the church. I was that kid, if you didn't piece that together, who went to church in shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt smelling like a cigarette. I was a teenager at that time, and I was absolutely lost, desperate, feeling hopeless. I was going after every promise that culture gave out there, telling me that if you got after this, you did this and did that, you would have joy. But it was just a mirage. The prospect of hope and joy would disappear the moment or after the moment of drinking too much or being under influence or being involved in things I shouldn't. It just caused emptiness and broken and great internal torment. I couldn't take it anymore, so I took a chance. I decided to turn to God by going to this church, and I was not let in because of how I looked. And I determined, if this is Jesus, and if you look like Jesus, I want nothing to do with Jesus. So that day, I walked away from the church, and for many, many days on. And I just dove into that way of life head on. And then a few years later, my grandma passed away. My grandma, grandma and grandpa were Lutheran, nothing against Lutherans. Her family, the brothers and sisters, my uncles and aunts were mostly Lutheran, but there were some Catholics in there. And so when my grandma passed away, my uncle, who was Catholic, wanted to sing Amazing Grace at his mom's funeral. The Lutheran pastor said no and fought him because he was Catholic. One degree off, not that big of a deal. Come on, you know Lutherans and Catholics haven't got along forever. Just get out of the way. When the addictions and things really set in, and when depression and suicide really started to kick in in my life, I would go to people who I thought were Christians, and I would ask them for help, and the advice would they would give me is, sober up, stop doing this, pray harder, read your Bible, and I would try. I would seriously try. I remember one morning after a bad night, I opened up the Bible, started reading Genesis, and I was like, I don't get this. And I was like, if this is what it is, I guess I'm never going to be good enough. I guess I'll never look the part. And that was that. It wasn't until somebody told me about Jesus and grace alone. That had nothing to do with my conduct. It had nothing to do with me being good enough. In fact, I used to believe that there's no way God could ever even love someone like me because of my past. I'm so far gone that there's no way God could redeem and love me. And they're like, yeah, while you were a sinner, he died for you. So that covers that. And then my heart broke in two ways. One, because I was overwhelmed with the joy of God. Oh my goodness. He saved me, transformed. But then my heart broke because I'm like, how come I never heard this for 19 years? And I felt called into ministry to go, simply Jesus. We can drift off course so easy. So maybe this morning what we need to do is just to repent of that. There's three things that we may 
that may cause us to drift from the gospel. The first one is a drift from grace to the law. And, and if, like, here's a good litmus test to check if that's you. When you feel the need to repent or to come back to God, is it simply accepting his grace and forgiveness? Or do you feel compelled that I have to read more, pray more, do more in order to get back in God's graces? Because if that's the case, you have drifted into law. The church is also prone to drift when it moves from reaching outsiders to appeasing and pacifying insiders, where we make it all about us, where the church has squabbles and fights about preferences and secondary things that really don't matter in the sake of the mission of the church. Consumerism, entitlement, coming to church expecting to be served instead of wanting to serve. Wanting it to be about you instead of this. And when, you're, when things don't go the way you want them to go or they don't look the way you want them to look, you get frustrated and you're tempted to leave the church to find the church that looks and feels just like you, you may have drifted from the gospel. Or if it's all about external behavioral modification and you've forgotten that how it's the Holy Spirit that transforms us from the inside. That's where we expect people to act like us, look like us, behave like us, vote like us. Maybe you need to repent from that. And the best way to repent from that is to close the gap from that one degree trajectory to where the cross is. And like do what Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, cast off every weight and every sin that entangles us and look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's the author. He's the refector. You don't have to clean up your act in order to repent. You confess your sins. He's faithful and just to cleanse it. It's grace. And that's the beauty and the power of it. Maybe some of you this morning, this is the first time you heard that Jesus is about a relationship. He's about the heart. And that he offers to you this morning a gift of grace. He's not expecting you to get your act together, to look the part, to play the part. He's willing to forgive and heal the church hurt and church wounds that may be on you. If that's you, I'd encourage you just to pray a prayer during this time and this worship set, just to be like, Lord, I received the gift of forgiveness. I confess my sin to you. I receive what you have done for me on my behalf. The church, let us not make it difficult for those who are turning to Jesus to find Jesus in our community. Simply about Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it cuts right to the heart. I thank you that your word is alive and active, that even if I say words that aren't perfect or thoughts that aren't coherent, your spirit has the ability to clarify. Lord, I thank you that your heart is always good and it's always for us and it always draws us back to you. Lord, if there's areas where we have drifted from the gospel, areas where we've added things to it, maybe in our own life, 
God, we repent, we confess that to you and bring us right back to the simplicity of the gospel, simply Jesus. Lord, we know that the reality is if we have added to it and we have drifted, we are probably making it hard for other people to see Jesus. So Lord, I ask that even as a church that you clarify for us areas where maybe we make it hard, areas that we may need to change as a church. We submit to you because we're your body and you're the head. This is, this is your bride. So do what you need to do. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who maybe is feeling that nudge to receive you as Lord and Savior this morning. To receive the gift of grace, the gift of life. Lord, would you shepherd our hearts in the way that you can and only you can. We pray this in Jesus' name.